From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan, the Taliban taking over, and Ahmed Siddiqui had to flee. I told my wife just a backpack to put few waters, a few cookies, powder milk for the little baby. The family squeezed onto a military transport plane and weeks later arrived in Denver, where there were some familiar faces. I served a country that now welcomes me, and I was not forgotten. And I have a family. These are all family now. A new family. But Siddiqui struggles to find work. A dream job is to stand on my own feet, feed my family, educate them, and not be dependent on the government anymore. Today, an Afghan family's story of coming to Colorado and starting a new life. When the world changes, come to CPR News for updates on what's happening. We'll keep you connected each and every day. Just tap on your phone to listen with the Colorado Public Radio app or come to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In Colorado, Afghans who escaped Kabul a year ago are making a life for themselves, or trying to. Like other refugees, they contend with lasting trauma, culture shock, homesickness, and obstacles to employment. Today and tomorrow, we'll meet two Afghans who, after the Taliban takeover, now call Colorado home, and the city councilwoman who's helping them and other refugees resettle. We'll start with Ahmed Siddiqui. For years, he worked closely with the American military, the U.S. Embassy, and private companies to rebuild his native country, a country he indeed fled with his wife and four kids with the help of his U.S. contacts. 22nd August was the day that I left my home. I left my parents. I didn't say goodbye to them. I couldn't because of the short notice. I didn't say goodbye to family members, to parents, to friends, to sisters, brothers, siblings, anyone. It was uh, 5.30. I got a call. Was that in the morning or the evening? Evening. 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 Okay. On 15th August, Afghanistan fall down. 22nd, I got a text saying, uh, where are you at? Ping me your location. I sent my location and it was, uh, said, you are driving? I said, yes, I cannot stay home because they are looking for me. They being the Taliban. They being the Taliban. Mm -hmm. They were circling my house. They were asking people. Not only me, where I was living, it was a high-profile community, Mm -hmm. opposite of Ministry of Interior. And no doubt the Taliban knew you existed. Your name was probably on some lists, and you were a target. My name was on the list. My name was the person who was providing aviation fuel to bomb them every day. I was the program manager for that project of the U.S. government. Which made you an enemy. Yes, and they knew who was leaving the country. So I pinged the group. They said, go to your family now and leave your house to this location. They sent me a location, a map, and everything. And this was to take the people closest to you, your, your immediate family. My immediate family. Yeah. Do not talk to anyone. Do not let anyone to know. Just go. Oh, so part of the reason you couldn't talk to 
extended family and to parents was for your own safety, for my own safety. and maybe theirs. It was their safety, my safety, and nobody should knew which specific location I'm going. Kabul airport was surrounded by thousands of people. Trying to leave. Trying to leave. Soldiers, U.S. soldiers or U.S. contacts within the airport would send you locations that they would knew how to get to the airport. Yeah, as a pickup like site. easier, mm-hmm. an easier way. Nothing was easy, but this was something to find an easier route to get in. And what was your location? Where were you supposed to report? For the first time, when I went to my house, I was told to not pick up anything except a small backpack. Mm-hmm. I told my wife, just a backpack, to put few waters, a few cookies, powder milk for the little baby. So that's all. And then I was supposed to move my documents. Half was with my sister, half was with me. So I grabbed them, put them in two backpacks, made it to the location. That location called Abbey Gate. Abbey Gate was behind the Kabul airport. And as Siddiqui approached, managing to clear a Taliban checkpoint, he called his contact. It was around 7 o'clock, the evening of August 22, 2021. Not even two hours had passed since he'd gotten the call to pack a few things, round up his wife and kids, and leave. But the American forces who were supposed to meet him weren't at Abbey Gate. Siddiqui's contact sent him to another meeting spot. Siddiqui had been given a code name, Kevin. They said, Kevin, you need to go back to the same spot, to the first spot. To the first spot? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I was like, okay, I turned back. I, I tried to go through that checkpoint, and the checkpoint asked me, like, what's going on with you? Right, this is multiple times this now. This is so many times you. you need to stop. I stopped, I told them. The road is blocked, made a lot of excuses. You can see it. I'm very fluent with Pashto, the language that most Taliban speak. Mm. I told them, you can see, I cannot go through those group of people. I need to turn back. In that way, the chaos was a bit of an excuse. It was. Uh I turned back. I parked the car. I started walking to that direction. It was getting late. Kabul city had no electricity. It was dark. And you could see thousands of people go in different directions and uncertainty. There was no rule of law in the city. Hmm. Anyone could do anything. Uh, I made it close to that specific location. That first gate. Yeah. The colonel who was on the phone is telling me to go talk with the soldiers. There was a little bridge over a sewage canal. I went close to them. It was dark. I couldn't see their patches. Who are they? I went close and I was like, I talked to them. They started talking to me. They said, nope, this is not American. This is British soldiers. You need to go find American soldiers. And I said, can I cross this bridge? He said, no, no, this is, you can't go through anywhere. Just go find where American soldiers are patrolling or guarding. Mm-hmm. I went and I finally saw few lights and I saw Marines. Because I have worked with them, I knew them by their uniforms. Mm. Who are they? That must have been a relief. Yeah, Special Force, Marines army. These were symbols you recognized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to the Marines and I 
was in this side of the canal. It was a three meter canal and it was smelly and a gray water canal. The colonel is telling me on the phone to yell at him and tell him that he needs to let you go. He said, just tell him his surgeon's name. So after a lot of working with the soldier, he agreed to talk over my phone. I waited another 30, 40 minutes. He walked inside the airport. He came back. He told me, where's your family? And that was a good sign for me. I said, okay. I run, grabbed my family, jumped in the sewage canal, and I had my first child, Cedra, my daughter, on my shoulder, crossing her and passing her to the soldier. You weren't near the bridge at that point. No, they were not allowing me to go to the bridge. That was British responsibility to secure. Wow, okay. Came back, second child, third child, fourth child. When I took my fourth child, giving it to the soldier, she started crying and screaming because she was a little baby and mom was on the other side, dad was on the other side, and I was just passing. It was heartbreaking. Anyway, I, I went back, made my wife to jump to the sewage canal because I couldn't put her on my shoulders. We crossed and I asked the soldier to help with my wife's. When you're a soldier, you have the body armor, which is 32 kilogram. Hmm. You have your weapon, you have your helmet, you have your night vision, everything. Poor guy, knee down, pulled her up. I was pushing her up. So we got her up and then I got up. This was the sign of relief when we made it to the other side of the sewage canal. J jumping in the sewage canal and getting out of it. It that was, was that was the good sign. That, that was day. the good sign. Of that. Yeah, okay. It was a huge relief for me. I took a very deep breath there, and I was like, "Wow, okay, I did something for my kids. Even if anything happened now, they are on the safe side. They can go. Even if they take me now, I don't care. They're in good hands now." By that point, it seems to me that you had already escaped the potential for death multiple times. I did. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the first thing coming to my mind. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you at that moment I was not thinking of anything. Only the only word would come to my mind was success. Mm -hmm. 10,000 or more or less or 100,000 people were on the other side struggling. I was feeling very much blessed to make it on this side. It was 10:30, 10 o'clock p.m. that we made it on the other side. Five in the morning of 23rd, we were able to get into an, a military plane. Headed for? Headed to Qatar. To Qatar. Yeah, to Qatar military air base. What was that flight like? Uh, was we, there a sense? I wonder what you might have thought the last time you looked at Afghan land out the window. Was there a window to look out of? There was not, no window. It was a military C-17 yeah, right. okay. aircraft. And when I asked how many people are in this plane, uh, one of the soldiers said 480-something. 480 people were sitting just like boxes. Like cargo? Like it was human a cargo, cargo. human cargo putting in lines. And the person who was sitting in front of you were touching your knees. Had you been able to shower or did you still smell like sewage? No, I, I was all like that. I couldn't shower. I was awake till that 5 o'clock in the morning. The land, you asked me 
really I looked, what I saw was a mess around me. The faces of the people, the unhappiness, the sorrow, the pain, you could see it. Our guest is Ahmed Siddiqui. He's among the Afghans who resettled in Colorado after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban a year ago. When we come back, he and his family arrive in Qatar, where it's scorching hot. Then another stop, and another. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. Today and tomorrow, we're meeting Afghan refugees who resettled in Colorado after the Taliban takeover and U.S. military withdrawal. Let's get back to my conversation with Ahmed Siddiqui, who fled with his wife and four children. We spoke in Broomfield, where he now lives. But before Colorado entered the picture, the Siddiqui's were flown to Qatar in a U.S. military plane. It was hot, humid, and it was 110 degrees. That's what they told me. I mean, August in the desert. In the desert, yeah. yes. We were moved to a huge hangar, military aircraft hangar, where we had to stay for a couple of days. At the beginning, I saw probably a few hundred, a thousand or 1,200 people there. I said, okay, do we get anything? They say, yeah, we will bring Maybe meals or... Meals or sleeping cuts mm. and things like that. I was like, okay, no problem. I was so tired. I did not sleep the night before. I felt asleep for an hour or two. I woke up and I could not believe my eyes. I and mean, this place was full, packed with people. More flights were arriving. Yeah. I, and I went and asked one of the military personnel there. I said, how many people are here? He said, 12,000 people, sir. And I was like, for sure, he said, maximum. I said, oh, thank you. Wow, wow, okay. I felt asleep in a bad timing because I did not make a spot for my kids. Now we, every place is taken and we are just there. I, wow. Anyway, it was one day, second, third, on fourth day. It was hot. It was humid. It was, air conditioning was not working for 12,000 people that, Showers, there was no shower. They had a water tanker. They told, I told them, I smell so bad. Can you give me something at least? Uh, mm-hmm. Thanks again to the military. They said they, they gave me a shirt with a short and a flip-flop because my shoes, everything was in a very bad shape. I, I went, opened the water and just threw some water on myself outside. Oh. <sighs> and changed my clothes, then slowly my wife did it, my kids. The little one, Fariha, my daughter, it was getting hot and hot, and I 
was not under any AC or something, so she got a heat stroke. Anyway, doctors were there, they were helping, we, we tried. On the fourth day, how we got out is a, a big story. Hmm. We were struggling. Midnight, they told me that you need to get into a plane and leave. I said, how? I said, try it. We can, there's no list, there's no manifest, there's nothing. Just try to get out of this situation. Anyway, I, I went to one of the gates. I pushed myself. I opened that place and got my kids. And there were buses. We made it to the runway. The plane was there. And I, we were the last bus. And I was like, if this plane gets enough passenger from the previous buses, previous buses we, would, we should go back to the same tent. We were praying. Thank God we were able to get into that plane. And this time it was worse than Kabul to Qatar. It was probably more people. Also a military aircraft? Again, military aircraft. Headed for where this time? This time they did not tell me. I asked them, they said, don't worry about it. Just get in. We (laughs) cannot tell you the destination. Okay. Everybody was hungry. Kids were screaming, crying, a lot of babies. I had my two baby on my laps and it was getting so cold in one hour, second, third, fourth, fifth. Fifth, And okay. then I asked where they said we can, okay, fifth. I was thinking myself, okay, Germany, they told me five hours. Now it's five hours. Why, why they're not landing? It's my exact thought. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, is it Europe? Is it, is Are we going like, to cross the Atlantic? I was like, what is going on? Are we going to US with this plane? Are we go- where are we going? After seven and a half hours, the plane landed and said, welcome to Italy, Sicily, Italy. The weather is this and you are in a military base. Sicily, okay, the Italian island in the yes. Mediterranean. Yes. And uh, we saw the weather was nice. When they opened the gate, it wasn't too bad. And the food was there, a lot of good welcoming from the military. We were moved to another hangar. This was uh, a thousand people. It was cleaner. Everybody had a bed. You could shower. So I started helping military with clinic, translation, interpretation. I started helping with the food distribution to the people. Wait, wait, wait. Your thought in this moment is how can I be of service? How can I help with them? Because... I have the language capacity. I see people who struggle. Military is trying their best. I was part of that family for a very long period. Your job is to help others, and I had to do it. In all of these stops, were you able to get any word about family in Afghanistan or your home? What's up? I had to walk to a specific location to to get some Wi-Fi. I did not talk to my parents until I get to Sicily. They did not know what happened, where I am at, what happened, where is he, why is it, his phones were not working. They might have thought you were still in Afghanistan. Yes. In Sicily, I got the first message from my uh, housekeeper that, okay, they came, they wanted to open the house, they could not open the house, they blew it. When I was in uh, Qatar, the explosion happened at that abbey gate where the soldiers were killed and so many people were killed. I remember. Yeah. 
I crossed that spot on 22nd and 26th when the explosion happened. Three days later. Yes. From Sicily, Ahmed Siddiqui, his wife, and four kids were flown to the United States, Philadelphia, and New Jersey first. Doctors looked over his daughter, still reeling from heat stroke. She needed rest before they could press on to Colorado and meet up with the American Siddiqui was close to, retired Army Captain Scott Henkel and his wife Heidi, a Broomfield City Councilwoman. Tell me about the first time you stepped foot in Colorado. If you allow me to tell what happened in New Jersey airport, she sent a few gifts to my kids. Heidi did? Surprises. We had $200 gift card. My kids were like, can we get burgers or, or sausages from this money? I said, yeah, go ahead. And the guy would just keep bringing French fries and sausages and burgers. And, and I was like, come on, it's enough. No, Dad, we didn't eat in, in the past two months. You didn't feed us well. I, we, I, it's so tasty, so good. And I'm like, oh, my God. This is at an airport food at court the airport in food New Jersey. In, in New Jersey, waiting to fly to Colorado. So the good things started there. Like, okay, my son, when we were in Kabul, Kabul airport, 4 o'clock in the morning, an hour to leave, he told me, you told me to, to you were going to take me to the United States. This is not U.S., I said, yes, it is Kabul, we're going. He said, I thought we were going to have pizza. I thought we were going to meet Spider-Man. Now it's nothing is here. It's a mess. What is this? I don't like this American. I said, it's not America yet. Wait. 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 So, so the, the airport, New Jersey I airport I pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Burger and pizza was like, okay, here, this is what U.S. is. Just, just enjoy. Proof. <laughs> Proof you are in the U.S. now. So we flew New Jersey toward Colorado. I was so emotional, thinking a lot of things were coming. Okay, this is final destination. You are going to settle here. What will happen to others? The sweet thing, I'm going this way, but how far I'm going from my families. Hmm. Everything was circulating. Did you wonder why me? Like, why did I make it out? I, I was wondering, I had support friends, families, colleagues to help me get out. What happened to the others? Was it a good decision to leave everything, everyone behind? Why I couldn't help? So these were things that were coming to mind. I think smell is one of the most powerful sensations that we have. I wonder if you remember the smell of the sewage. Is that a smell you'll ever forget? I would never forget it because I was carrying it for two days with me. Yeah. <laughs> my clothes on. And do, you, do you ever get whiffs of something that remind you of it? Oh, that was the worst smell. I never, I never forget it, and I have not smelled it again yet. Oh, good. Okay. I hope that that continues to be <laughs> the case of it. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks so much. Still to come, Ahmed Siddiqui and his family finally make it to Colorado and try to build a new life here. While his children have adapted quickly, Siddiqui struggles to find meaningful work, despite his long experience aiding the U.S. in his native Afghanistan. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC.
Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. From the bottom, now we're here. That's part of the joy of Started listening to music bottom, and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. Coloradans have opened their arms to Afghan refugees, especially the city of Broomfield. There, Councilwoman Heidi Hankel has fought to make a place for them. We'll hear from her tomorrow. Hankel's husband, retired Army Captain Scott Hankel, had served in Afghanistan, working side-by-side in often dangerous conditions with our guest today, Ahmed Siddiqui. Altogether, Siddiqui aided U.S. forces for two decades. When the Taliban took over a year ago, the Hankels helped get Siddiqui and his family out of Kabul. Let's rejoin my conversation as they arrive at Denver International Airport. When we landed, I saw them. I saw Heidi, Captain... I saw Congressman Johnny Goose welcoming. I saw so many other civilians coming to welcome my family. I saw Congressman Jason Crew welcoming a family that went through a lot. That moment I would never forget, and I would. It was a huge, huge thing for myself and for my family. Meaning that okay, I served a country that now welcomes me at the airport, and I was not forgetting, and I have a family. These are all family now, a new family. It's fascinating to me that you were in a place you'd never been, and yet you saw familiar faces, which I have goosebumps at even thinking Mm -hmm. about that. It occurs to me that in many ways, people are home as much as place. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. I saw so many people with placards, welcome Siddiqui, family. That connection, I still, sometimes when I see people, I'm so nice, I don't care what happens, because those people represent the whole Colorado for me. That moment is not going away from my eyes. How nicely, how warmly they welcome that. You what see happened? every Coloradan in that, On and that. you want to treat them. Treat them with the respect. Way- and, and be thankful to every single one of them because that was how they were represented when we landed in Colorado. Is your family in Afghanistan okay? We, when we say okay, they are safe yet. They are in an un- anonymous place. They don't talk to people much. Is it dangerous that they're related to you? In so many ways. Even you just Google my name, you get at least a hundred pictures of me there. It's not a picture I'm sitting alone or enjoying something. It's with the NATO ambassador. It's with the U.S. ambassador. It's with the governors. It's with, with General Petraeus, who was the head of the ISAF and head of CIA. General Petraeus, yeah. yeah. So it's very easy to draw it's a line. It's easy to draw a line. Like maybe I was just somebody who was helping in translation, or maybe I was helping with political process of transition, or probably protocol officer for the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan, but they draw a line. They, they say, who is this guy? Well, I'm, I'm grateful to know that they are alive, 
And I understand how difficult that existence is for them then. Or at least I seek to understand it. I want to talk a little bit about your life here. Mm -hmm. I know that one obstacle has been finding a job. Yes. Out of money. And the money that goes with Out of money is obstacles. Uh One obstacle is finding a job. Out of many? Yeah. I heard earlier your desire to be of service, your desire to work, to help. Why do you think it's been difficult to land employment in the months that you've been here? Whatever I did, and if you go through my resume, it's for a company, for an employer, it's hard to make a decision. My life starts in 2003 with military, humanitarian assistance, building bridges, empowering women, education for girls, helping families in need, not allowing school kids to join the insurgency, digging wells and helping with projects for people to get water, irrigation of agriculture, empowering private sector, empowering government entities to stand on their own feet, helping people. It's funny, I hear all of that and I think, hired, you're hired, Ahmed, you're hired. But maybe it's that. You're not easy to put into a box, are exactly. you? Exactly. You've That's done a little bit of everything. Everything. So that was the focus. And, and it was in a country that were in war for 40 years. My soul, my heart was to help and help and work. And, and, and one thing I wanted to say that every single American that were not in the military or were not serving in Afghanistan in the past 20 years should appreciate and should understand that they are citizens of this country because what their soldiers, their government went through on that country to keep you guys safe here, I understand it. I understand it fully and how hard, how difficult, and how much effort was put together to keep you guys safe here. It was for both nations, for both nations. That's why I was working shoulder to shoulder with them. And that's what you want all Americans to understand. Exactly. What do you want employers to understand? What's your dream job? And what would you tell someone sitting across from you at that interview about your, you know, diverse resume? I would say try me. I'm not somebody to say like, okay, I work, I come to work at eight and I leave at four. For me coming five o'clock, leaving nine o'clock, it's just like eating lunch. It's not like I would go, this is my job description, I will only follow this. No, I can do bigger than that. In 2015 to 2021, August, I was a project manager for ground fuel, fueling the U.S. Army and Afghan Army in 34 provinces. When you say I supply fuel, ground fuel for the army in every single base in a country that you get attacked, you get ambushed, you get drivers killed, you get rocket attack, you get any type of hate you think of, that's what I did. I can make your widget. Exactly. I can push your paper. I can plan your conference. Yeah. The second I was fueling aviation fuel, supplying aviation fuel for every military airplane to operate on that country. What is your dream job? 
with all of those skills and all of that experience. A dream job. See that for somebody who is uh, in my situation, the dream job is two, three things. Honestly, this is coming from my heart. A dream job is to stand on my own feet, be able to feed my family, educate them, and not be dependent on the government anymore. Mm. Not be dependent on government programs and, 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 and helps and donations or things like that. Has it been hard to accept help from others? Because one thing I know about helpers is they often don't accept help themselves. It's hard. It's very difficult to convince myself. Like, okay, you have hands, you have eyes, you have brain, you have everything. Why not? Why you cannot do it? And that's very hard. But still, I have to appreciate the the help, the donation, the support I got Mm. here. Because I could not be homeless. I know that enough time has passed that you've been in the United States and that you've been driving, that you're now allowed to work for a ride service. I know you're doing some delivery, food delivery. How are your kids adjusting? Are they, have they gotten their fill of pizza, do you think? Enough, and, and I don't know, I can mention the name of the company he likes now is Blackjack Pizza is his favorite. Blackjack Pizza, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow it, <laughs> even though it's clearly an advertisement. <laughs> yeah, it is, but that's why I was like, okay, the, the two elder kids, the first year was difficult for them, and difficult meaning, oh, my classmates, I don't know them, who are they, I want my old classmates, this is different. This year... They've just started school. They just started school. They were dying to go back to their classes. They have so many friends. They already adjust. They speak English with themselves, among themselves. Yeah, I try to speak Farsi with them. They speak English among themselves. They read English books. They go to that library, pick up English books. They watch movies. The library just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. In Broomfield. Broomfield Library. Uh They are member of that library. Fiction, nonfiction books. I never knew about those things. They just go pick up these little books and, and, and finish it and say, Dad, we're done. Let's take it back. And they don't even remember Afghanistan exists. Hmm. How does that make you feel? I feel happy because I don't want them to carry that burden, carry that pain with them. Uh-huh. I want them to continue life, learn, educate, work hard, do something for that people once you're mature. Is Colorado home? Do you imagine going back to Afghanistan? Honestly, Colorado is home. Colorado opened his arms to us and... and, and, and embraced us and gave us home, that is home. At this moment, I cannot go to Afghanistan. It's not safe. It's not safe. And for how long it will stay like this, I don't know. Hmm. We must, I must, my family must make it home. It must make Colorado home. We must make Colorado home. You don't have a choice, is what I hear you If I do have choice, honestly, if I do have choice, that country doesn't have a government. My daughter is fifth grade, and she will be sixth grade next year. Sixth grades till 12th grades are not allowed to study. 
My, I have three daughters. We know what's the, the woman rights there. <laughs> we know the girls' education rights. Should I allow my daughters and my wife to go on that situation? I can't. Thank you for talking to me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ahmed Zadiki, an Afghan refugee, now lives in Broomfield with his wife and four kids. They fled Kabul a year ago after he served U.S. forces for two decades. Tomorrow, we'll meet the Broomfield City Councilwoman and military spouse who's helped them make a home here. Plus, the story of another Afghan refugee in Colorado, 21-year-old Salma Rahin. She was in medical school, taking a test the day the Taliban reclaimed power. She and her family headed for the airport. We passed that gate, and we were in safe zone when the explosion happened, and everything changed in one second. Was this the explosion that killed so many? Yeah, so many people. So I lost my father. He was just next to me, and I, I tried to help to take a bag from him and just put it on the ground. Then explosion happened, and when I opened my eyes, all my family members were around me, wounded, injured, and they wasn't conscious. That's tomorrow, on air and in our podcast. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tiny wings zinging 70 times a second. A hummingbird makes a familiar sound in Colorado's late summer. Hummingbirds are the smallest birds on Earth, diminutive stunt pilots, one moment zipping along at 60 miles an hour, the next hovering in place to sip from a delicate flower. Colorado's most common one is the broad-tailed hummingbird, and like the rest of its family, it also eats insects, even small bugs stolen from a spider's web, if not also the spider itself. But it's hummingbirds' affinity with flowers that keeps them going, with their specialized tongues and slender bills to access nectar and feeders full of sugar water. That's the fuel they need to stay aloft, to keep their mighty, minuscule hearts thumping at up to 1,200 beats per minute, and to make an annual migration as far south as Guatemala, when Colorado days and nights grow cold again. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. Families in Jefferson County are reeling from the news that 16 elementary schools could close next year. Declining birth rates are a factor. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine talked with parents at a school in Arvada that's on the list. Nicole Rodella remembers the day she first saw the elementary school. Huge green fields, 100-year-old cottonwoods, just a magical piece of property for a school to be on. There was even a gentle, steady creek in the back of Campbell Elementary School. And we would drive by and be like, man, those kids are lucky. 
Even though Rodella lived a 25-minute drive away in another school district, the family applied and got into several elementary schools, including Campbell in Jefferson County. We chose Campbell because after we walked through the doors the first time, it felt like we were supposed to be there. But last Thursday, 10 days into the new school year... And there's absolutely no joy in what we are presenting here tonight, but it is the work that we believe needs to be done. Rodella learned Campbell Elementary was on the school district's list for possible closure. The criteria are a school that enrolls fewer than 220 students. Campbell had 195, with space for 364. The other criteria district set are schools that use 45% or less of the building's capacity and are close to another elementary school. Superintendent Tracy Dorland. We have 45 elementary schools that are using 60% or less of their capacity. And it's causing incredible pressure on our entire system. The district also named nearby schools that will absorb students from the closing schools. Yes, we are bringing in reinforcements with coffee and breakfast burritos. And The next morning, Campbell Elementary Principal Lara Wyant lugs boxes of coffee and goodies into the school. She knows it will be a tough day for staff and families. Parent Scott Morrison says first graders and their parents are especially close-knit. It's far more than a little class. It's a straight-up community. That's why school closures are so wrenching. They fissure entire networks of friends and families in a neighborhood. What was stable now seems unstable. It's been the only real constant in a lot of these kids' lives, and now it's just gone. It's just, it's sad. It, it sucks. It really does. I feel sad. 15-year-old Kendra Dickinson is in the car with her mother, dropping off a younger sibling. She attended Campbell in kindergarten through fifth grade. I love the teachers here, especially Miss Henry. Kendra still swings by to visit Miss Henry when she walks home from high school. Kendra's mom, Nicole Sandoval, says Campbell has educated multiple generations. So her father, her aunt, all of my four children, my kids are pretty devastated about it. It's the same for Ashley Whalen. She drives 20 minutes each day from another school district to keep the family tradition alive for her son. It was upsetting. Um, my mother, myself, as well as him all came here. So knowing that it closes is losing that tradition of all of us coming here. So it was upsetting, but you got to do what you got to do, unfortunately. She remembers the teachers taking good care of the students. They were the kind of teachers who understand that life gets in the way sometimes. Waylon says a small school benefits her son. He was really shy, and now that he's here and talking with like the kids and the teachers, he's a very open kid now. Hi, Remy. So. Many of the families are resigned. It seems like a done deal, but some still have questions. Parent Courtney Carslake. It definitely doesn't make sense uh, in terms of the growth around Arvada and the potential growth very close to this school, especially after all of the, the upgrades they performed over the summer on this campus. So that would be my question is why would they upgrade it just to close it down. Last summer, the school got new playgrounds, repaved the parking lot, got a new digital welcome marquee sign, and a new HVAC system. The money was from a 2018 voter-approved bond. Campbell is now slated to become a preschool. That's a hard pill for parents to swallow. But Nicole Rodella is trying to take a cue from her six-year-old daughter, who learned after her mother looked at the enrollment numbers this summer that the school may one day close. And I couldn't lie to her. I told her. She processed it. 
She said that she wanted to cry, but she'd be strong. And it's Rodella's turn to cry. The weeks ahead will be hard for many in Jefferson County. The school board will vote on the entire package of proposed closures November 10th. I'm Jenny Brandine, CPR News. Being in Broomfield to meet Afghan refugees for the first part of today's show got me thinking about the city itself. It recently turned 60, and the county, Colorado's youngest, just turned 20. So what is Broomfield named after? I tracked down the answer, sort of, in January. If someone's going to know how Broomfield got its name, it'll be the guy who's sweeping, David Allison. He's the coordinator of Broomfield's museum, which is in an old depot. That's correct. This is the old train depot for Broomfield. 1909 is when it was built. Why would you have brought a broom to our conversation about Broomfield? Well, Broomfield's name origin, most folks attribute it to the broom corn crop, which many people thought kind of grew around this area in the 1800s, late 1800s. Broom corn. Help us understand what that is. Broom corn is not corn in the way that we think about it. It is, in fact, a sorghum-related plant. And so uh, what you do with broom corn is harvest it, let it dry, take off the small berries that are on top, and then you kind of tie it together into a broom. And that's what you were sweeping with. Now, As you set that idea up, it sounded like there might be some doubt as to whether this oft-told tale is actually the reason Broomfield is called Broomfield. Yeah, that's that's right. One of the other theories is that Broomfield, England, um, UK, which has a very beautiful castle, may have been kind of the namesake. You know, Anglophiles coming into this area really might have loved the castle there and wanted to name it after Broomfield. But we can't find much evidence of that. But David Allison, it is your job to know where the name Broomfield came from, right? I mean, isn't this the most fundamental question if you're the head of the Depot Museum? Right. Well, you know, folks in Iowa or Illinois might argue, you know, our Broomfields were the first Broomfields. This is patently false. Do not believe those people from Iowa and from Illinois. Because as you go back and look at the postal records, we found definitive evidence that Broomfield, Colorado, though it is further west and you would you know, assume that the earlier settled areas in the, in the country might have had precedence on the name, is not in fact true. Broomfield, Colorado is the first Broomfield in the United States. It's the first Broomfield in the United States. I see what you did there. You tried to deflect my question with another interesting answer. But how is it that that we actually don't know the provenance of the name? Is there just a dearth of materials from that time or what? Yeah, absolutely. So what we have to do as historians is work with the evidence that we have. And if we don't have the evidence, we can't make the assumption. We think the best answer is broomcorn, but we don't know that for sure. Are you frustrated by this dearth? Do you, I don't know, have like an all points bulletin out for people who might know the story? You know, some mysteries are just nice to have and to embrace and to not quite know, but to constantly be wondering, be searching, be thinking about it. And you know what? That's one of those things that here in this town, at least, brings people some joy. Some joy. Now, Broomfield could be a last name, couldn't it? Have you ever met a Broomfield? Yeah, I know that there are some Broomfields in the historic record. As a matter of fact, at one point, I saw an editorial, somebody saying we should change the origin of the name or 
kind of have the heritage of a Broomfield who had some interaction in Colorado at some point. I don't think that ever really caught on because, quite frankly, the Broomfield in, in question wasn't all that notable of a person. But <laughs> that's a delicate or maybe a less delicate way of putting that. But I understand what you mean. This was not an exceptional human who, for instance, owned a ton of land and gifted it to someone or, you know, was a military hero. Exactly. And to that point, a lot of the land that's now Broomfield was actually owned by Adolf Zhang, who is a brewer in Denver. Uh, he owned 4,000 acres of what's now Broomfield. And actually, Zhang's Spur was almost the name of Broomfield. Broomfield persisted. It predated Zhang's Spur. And so that's probably why it won out. Zhang's Spur, in other words, a spur on a rail line, I'm guessing. That's correct. It was a spur on the rail line. It was basically a way for him to get the barley and, you know, hops and those sorts of things down to his brewery in Denver. Broomfield as a place long predated, though, the incorporation. That's right. Yeah, Broomfield was named Broomfield and a spot that the post office recognized as a location where you could get your mail by 1884. But it was not incorporated as a city until really there were quite a few more people here to make it, you know, viable as a city. Well, I feel like while we're in Broomfield, we ought to get another cool fact or two. And I have a feeling that here at this depot, it's probably just the right place to ask the question. Would you be interested in a bank robbery story? I mean, does anyone say no to that, David? Well, I've never found anybody yet, but <laughs> I, can, I can share briefly that the bank robbery happened in 1929. You know, people were starting to get hard up in 1929, right? The, the Depression was right on the minds of everybody, and economic systems were in peril. And Broomfield was still a very small town, but it had a bank uh, with actually a fairly sizable safe. But a few bank robbers uh, were able to actually abscond with all of the money in the safe. Nobody ever found it. It's kind of an unsolved case. Uh, the bank then installed a much larger and more kind of intensive style safe that's still here today down in Broomfield. Uh, it's owned by a construction company now, that building, but it's a beautiful safe. What is it with you and unsolved stories, David? You know, history is full of things that we cannot put our fingers on definitively, but that is fun to explore. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. David Allison is coordinator of the Broomfield Depot Museum in mystery-filled Broomfield, Colorado. We spoke in January. If there's something you wonder about in Colorado, let us know, and we can try to find the answer. Head over to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to a team that helps crack all sorts of mysteries. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.